0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today, we've got two examinations of the North American slave trade that, while it is well-trod territory for writers, seem to bring new and interesting perspectives on the topic. In a bit, we'll hear about a novel that examines Canada's role in the Underground Railroad. But first, an absolutely wild nonfiction story about a young enslaved couple. Ellen and William Kraft, and how they escaped slavery by pretending to be something they weren't. The book is called Master Slave Husband Wife by writer Illyan Wu, and she talked to NPR Steve Inskeep about this amazing couple and why, after they escaped, after they made their way from Georgia up the East Coast, they eventually decided to go back.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Live Right, publishers of Left For Dead Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and... snacksing? Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
3: We have the story of a divided nation, not divided as we know now, but divided between states that banned slavery and states that embraced it. In 1848, in the slave state of Georgia, a husband and wife decided to escape. It was 800 miles to Philadelphia, in the free state of Pennsylvania, but Ellen and William Craft made a plan to travel by train and boat in disguise. The writer Ilyan Wu reconstructs their escape in her new book, Master, Slave, Husband, Wife.
1: Ellen was the daughter of her first enslaver, and from him she had inherited a very light complexion. So she's actually the one who disguises herself as a master. She dons the outfit of a wealthy white male enslaver who is disabled and thus is all the more dependent on the services of her slave. And that World of the Slave is performed by her husband, William.
3: What was the disguise?
1: All the accoutrements of gentlemanhood in this period. She has a double-story hat, as they call it. She has a man's shirt. She's made her own pants because she's very small. And she has a vest and a jacket. And then she has glasses that hide her eyes. And she has poultices that she wears on her face. I picture like an ace bandage kind of thing that she's wrapped around. So it's hiding both the lack of hair on her face, that would give her away. And it's also hiding her feeling, especially with the eyes covered up as well.
3: Because she would be terrified all the time.
1: It must have been terrifying. They thought they could be captured at any time, but there were certain crises moments that really brought this out. And she gradually learned throughout the journey how to harness that fear and how to be the master that people want to see on the road.
3: You put a map in the book here, which I'm looking at, and it's got a line showing their escape route, Mm -hmm. and it's basically all the states of the entire eastern seaboard from Georgia northward. (laughs) What was America like at that moment in 1848?
1: It was an incredibly tumultuous time, as you know from your own research. There are all these revolutions going on. I mean, even beyond America, there are democratic revolts going on all over the world in Europe, And America is celebrating that, and America's borders are expanding with the end of the Mexican-American War. There's a transportation revolution going on with trains and steamboats and people moving at paces they couldn't have even imagined before. And with it, there's an information revolution. News is traveling incredibly fast. I mean, In some ways, it's very much like our era, where everything feels like it's changing so rapidly. And this is the world in which the crafts seize upon their own freedom.
3: What was the most terrifying moment of their escape?
1: I think I might even point to the very beginning. As soon as they get to the train station, they're in the train, William has found his place in the what's called a Negro car, Ellen has bought the tickets. They look outside, and there's a cabinet maker from the shop where William works, and they learn later that he's had this strange intuition that something is off. And he comes, and he actually checks the cars of the train, and their hearts are beating, and they don't know what's going to happen. And then when they think that's over, Ellen looks to her side, and sitting there right next to her is a man who she served the night before, a, a close friend of her enslavers. I mean, it just, it couldn't have been been a more terrifying start.
3: This is a movie, isn't it?
1: (laughs) It's very cinematic. That's, I I actually thought about, whenever I got stuck in trying to figure out how to tell the story, I sort of tried to picture where would the camera move and which camera people am I going to use in terms of the angles that I'll get into the story.
3: I want to note one other thing about their story that you tell, and that is that after the end of slavery. After the end of the Civil War, Mm -hmm. they chose to return to the South, to South Carolina and then to Georgia. Why did they do that?
1: This is their continued journey as people who are challenging not only themselves and their community, but the nation to rise up. And what they do is they draw on their own experiences, having attended an agricultural and educational cooperative in England. And that's someplace where they might have just stayed happily ever after. For good, they could have settled there and been safe. But instead, as soon as they are free by the nation's laws, they are starting to make other plans and they come back to America Not to Boston, again, where they might have had a much more comfortable life, but they go back to Georgia and they start the school. And there's an incredible testimony by this over 100-year-old woman who had been enslaved on the grounds where they opened their school. And she's remarking on just the unbelievable transformation and opportunity that she has on these same grounds where she experienced so much pain.
3: What does this story mean to you now in 2023?
1: You know, we are living in such divided times and people say again and again, you have to look back to the years before the Civil War to see America so divided. And for me personally, having worked on this story over the last many years, I've been continually inspired by each of the choices the crafts make. It starts, of course, with their journey in pursuing their own freedom, the way in which they continually challenge themselves. For me, that's been an ongoing inspiration.
3: Can I ask one more question that's just occurring to me as I'm sitting here? We are talking in a moment when there's a lot of debate about how to teach slavery in schools. Mm -hmm. And one line of thinking is that teaching slavery in schools is going to make white kids feel bad. Mm -hmm. Should white people feel bad about this story you tell?
1: I hope the story will be inspirational for people of all ages and all colors, all backgrounds. I mean, this is this is an American story. America reaching for better, Americans reaching for better. And I would have to say, too, I've been thinking a lot about this with the Martin Luther King Day, and my own journey with the story, I feel like, in many ways, began with my own childhood educational experiences at a school named for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Hmm. And the way the history was taught to me at that time, because I did learn a lot about slavery, I did learn a lot about what is, might now be called black history, but which was just presented to me as as history alongside so many other histories. I was exposed to so many different American histories and international histories, and it felt to me it felt to me like all of these things can and did coexist at once. I think the crafts show us what the true meaning of American freedom can be.
3: Ilyan Wu is the author of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu.
0: This next book, In the Upper Country by Kai Thomas, looks at Canada's role in the Underground Railroad and examines the relationship between Black and Indigenous people. And Thomas tells NPR's Ari Shapiro that he had to actively fight the compulsion to romanticize that relationship, because it could have so easily been depicted as all rainbows and sunshine, but of course, that's not how life works.
4: When the author Kai Thomas was researching his first novel, he came across a black and white photo from the mid-1800s.
5: I was struck by the image. Photography was just being invented, and black folks for the first time in history were able to represent themselves in that way. It was a portrait of a man named John
4: Daddy Hall. Thomas began learning everything he could about him.
5: So he had fought in the War of 1812 for the indigenous leader Tecumseh, And he was captured during that war and enslaved for many years and escaped and was one of the founding members of a community that was at the terminus of the Underground Railroad and was the town crier of that community and purportedly lived to be 115 years old.
4: Are you kidding? In the 1800s, he lived to be 115? That's like biblical.
5: Yeah, exactly. It has that
4: (laughs) sense to it. As he dug deeper, Kai Thomas found a name on a census record for one of John Daddy Hall's daughters, Lucinda. There were no details about her, and that set his imagination running. I wonder
5: what she would have sounded like and what she would have been interested in. And the curiosity that I held around what her experience would have been propelled the thrust of the novel. That novel is called In
4: the Upper Country. The character named Lucinda and another woman spend most of the book swapping stories. They are in a place we don't often hear about in histories of the Underground Railroad, a Canadian community of free Black people. Growing up in Canada, Kai Thomas was familiar with the history of such places.
5: It was certainly, you know, one of the narratives that I was brought up on as a kind of defining moment in Canada's history. It's something mm-hmm. that we celebrate and recognize. And, you know, there are these communities such as, you know, Buxton, Ontario, which survives and has this vibrant Emancipation Day festival. But by and large, a lot of these communities actually dissipated after emancipation in the U.S. So people went back down south into the United States. Many did, yeah. Many did. And and some of these communities in Canada were destroyed due to racist violence and discrimination and de facto segregation that was encountered there. So there's this other kind of chapter to this period of history in Canada that I'm trying to shed light on.
4: One of those themes is the relationship between Black and Indigenous people, which is not something we hear a lot about as we study this history. We hear about the relationship between Black and white people, between white people and Native communities. Tell me about what you wanted to explore in looking at these connections between Black and Indigenous folks.
5: Yeah. I mean, when I started to look at the history and and do research, I found plenty of examples of political alliances, relationships, encounters that I hadn't ever seen represented in literature. And not to say that it's never been done, but it's very rare. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. The two communities tend to, think of ourselves as inherently different and and separated and not really having this shared history. And I just thought it was so important to bring that to to life in this book.
4: One of the things that comes across in the novel that might be obvious, but when you look at the relationship between Black and Indigenous communities, it's complicated. There are alliances and marriages and also betrayals and conflicts. There's no one story of how these two groups of people interacted.
5: That is certainly true. I think, you know, from a modern perspective, I feel and felt during the writing of the book a lot of compulsion to romanticize that historical relationship Mm. because it's an easy route to take. And I think the history of the encounter between any peoples or races is, is always complex and it's always fraught with power and Privilege and political decisions. And so it was a process of trying to be realistic. Because this work of fiction
4: is grounded in historical research, there were lots of moments as I was reading it that I thought, wait, is that real? And one of them comes in a story that takes us into an entire underground village built into the earth. Will you read a portion of the book where you describe this sort of underground community? You, you write that their dwellings are impossible to find, for the village, it is said, is below the earth itself.
5: We were ushered through to a cavern wherein we could see the moonlight from a crack in the ceiling, and it shone on the center of a large pool of slowly flowing water. There we bathed. The water was fresh and sweet, and the cavern was peaceful with its soft sound and its enclosure. And I was overcome by a powerful sense of relief.
4: Was this based on a real historical place or did that just come from your imagination?
5: That is a real, I mean, I my imagination certainly gave it character and vibrancy and details that I can't attest to from a historical point of view. But that is a real phenomenon, especially in the Chesapeake Bay area and further inland in Virginia and North Carolinas. And there's increasingly a lot of archaeological evidence to support the maroon communities that emerged in those areas.
4: Maroon communities, did you say?
5: Maroon communities, maroon referring to the position of being a a self-emancipated, formerly enslaved person. And why did they build
4: these underground
5: cities? Well, underground in swamps, in places that were unaccessible and easy to remain hidden Mm. in. So it was about
4: safety and avoiding detection.
5: Definitely about safety, about, you know, building a community that is not interested in being noticed and is, on the contrary, based on the idea of subverting the standing power structures.
4: Mm. So over the course of the book, many threads are woven together, including familial threads. And I thought about the fact that those who are descended from enslaved people today often cannot trace their family history back past a certain point because that knowledge was deliberately stamped out. And so what did it mean for you as a writer imagining the past to weave some of these threads together in fiction that perhaps in real life might have been snipped?
5: For me, that was one of the interesting possibilities of fiction. I think in real life, you may have experiences or some people may have those encounters that bring everything together. But for most of us, when we or our families or our ancestors have suffered a profound disruption into our stories, we don't get that back, right? And I think fiction is just a really exciting place to imagine what it would be to heal those ruptures. Hmm. And that's part of, you know, what drew me to to writing was a way to, to really go there in a creative sense.
4: Kai Thomas, his debut novel is In the
5: Upper
0: Country. Thanks so much for talking with us about it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Angela Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Kat Lonsdorf, Sarah Handel, Samantha Balban, Ed McNulty, Shannon Rhodes, Fernando Nado roman Melissa Gray, Julie Deppenbrock, Rina Advani, Elena Burnett, and Lee Hale. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone.